0: The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. If you would please turn it to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Where we're going to meet a man who has known his daughter for 12 years. 12 years. 12 years almost to the day. The pain cries of labor would cease as an expectant father would be waiting outside the room, hearing the cries of his wife in labor, listening intently and anxiously, praying under his breath the entire time, and then he suddenly lets out a deep breath of relief. As one room away, he hears the cries of his wife cease, a momentary silence, and then those first precious cries of a newborn child. A midwife emerges from behind a curtain, Sweat on her brow, a smile on her face, and she says, your wife did so well. God has blessed you today with a daughter. Would you like to come and meet her? From that moment on, as he, he probably kisses his wife on the forehead and, and looks down at the child in his arms, in her arms, his life will never be the same. You see, today, Jairus has become a father. And as he looks upon his precious little girl and holds her in his arms for the first time, he is filled with love that he has never known before. Parents, you'll know this feeling well. From the first moment that he he holds his beloved firstborn, it, it wasn't as if he had to carve out new capacity in his life to love this human being. No, it was like a part of his heart came alive for the very first time. Such a precious gift. And so while to this point his life has been all about him, His plans have been all about him and and his bride and what they'll do and their hopes and dreams and and, and the life they're building together. It's as if suddenly a, a switch has flipped and he looks upon this child and he realizes something. Life is not about me anymore as if it ever was. He realizes that there is now this responsibility, so much more added to his life. And now as he looks ahead at his life, as his wife and he look ahead at their hopes and dreams, some of the greatest highlights he now anticipates are inseparable from his precious child. They're wrapped up in in seeing the day in which his daughter comes to know the Lord, begins to walk with God, begins to, to pray out loud herself. He looks forward to watching her grow to love and serve him. He looks forward to those, those first steps, those first words, to seeing her grow from a girl to become a woman. Maybe one day he'll get to walk her down the aisle. See, Jairus is a, is a leader in his church. He's a, he's a ruler in the synagogue. Maybe one day he'll get to officiate her wedding if she will let him. He treasures all the experiences the laughter, the making memories, the reading together, the praying together, the telling of stories. And here, Jairus, this respected member of his community, he has left no confusion to those that would wonder what his priorities are. He puts God first, and then he puts his family, especially his precious only daughter and his wife, above everything else. She has meant the world to him, his only girl, 12 years. 12 years of joy, 12 years of memories, 12 years of watching a precious baby grow into a curious and wonderful little girl. And now in her 12th year of life, the Jewish community around her would see her as not just a girl, but a girl becoming a woman, but not to her dad, Jairus. To him, she's still just his little girl. And today, his life is about to change forever as he realizes something, that his daughter is dying. dying. 12 years of joy turned to sorrow. See, she's been sick for for days now. She's been getting weaker by the minute. The color is starting to leave her face, and the entire family has now gathered downstairs to pray and to wait. They know that news is coming, bad news. Jairus is about to lose his only daughter, his little girl, and as he looks forward to his life, all his hopes and dreams, suddenly her face is vanishing from all of them. For many of us, this is, this is too painful to even consider. I have three daughters of my own. I have four children. My brother and his, his wife, praise God, gave birth to baby twin girls two days ago, and we're, we're so excited about that. But I think as we consider this, this precious and fragile gift that Jairus and his wife have received, and, and this event in their life where she is on her deathbed, I, 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 if you can go there with me, and some of you can't, if you can go there with me, I want you to try to put yourself in his shoes. And feel a little bit of what he is feeling in this moment. What do you feel? I'll tell you what I feel as I, as I consider this. I feel anxiety. I feel fear. I feel urgency. I feel like the, the light is beginning to fade into darkness, and there's, there's no hope of getting it back. Desperation. I think that's what Jairus feels. Desperation. And Jairus, being a loving father, he spent what money he could... He's exhausted his medical resources. And and honestly, the medicine just isn't that good. There's not anything that they can do to save her. And he's just been told that that his daughter has hours, not days to live. So as his little daughter starts to become pale, her breath becomes more and more labored. Jairus looks at his wife. And through tears, they, they remember something. Jesus. Jesus, this controversial figure, this teacher that's been going through... countryside preaching going into the synagogues even the synagogue his very own synagogue in Capernaum Jesus people say he can heal people say that that at his touch and at his word dark spirits flee that he can calm the deep and that he can heal the broken even the dying Jesus comes to mind what if he can save my daughter His fame has spread, and word is beginning to come and trickle into the downstairs conversation as the family has gathered that Jesus has been gone across the sea, but he's coming back. His boats have been seen in the harbor. He's approaching Capernaum. Jesus is coming. Maybe he can heal my daughter. And as he sits at the bedside of his little girl with his wife, he kisses her one last time releases her cold hand, and does the last thing that he could imagine doing. He leaves her side, and he goes to find Jesus. He begins to run, sweating, hurried, undignified. This ruler among people, all of a sudden brought to utter humility and desperation as he knows his utter need, and he runs to Jesus, where by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he finds a great crowd is already in the way and has already gathered. I want you to look at Mark chapter 5 verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. So so through the dense crowd, as Jesus is arriving on the shore, his boats pull in. Him and his disciples are getting out and, and trying to form a perimeter. But the crowds are already there. They're pressing in on Jesus. Everyone wants a piece of this healer, this teacher, this rabbi. And yet somehow they all know the desperate need of Jairus. And it's as if his entourage pushes their way to the front of the crowd. They make a way for this desperate man to be with Jesus. Now, now, what Jairus is, he's a, when I say a ruler of the synagogue, he's, he's like a pastor, he's like a worship leader, he's someone that, that people respect. I don't know if you respect your pastors and worship leaders here or not, but he at least is someone respectable, well thought of by his whole community. He's like an elder. People know him. People know his family. They know his relationship with his daughter. He's respected by this community. And, but in all likelihood, um, Jesus would have been kind of a contra- controversial figure to the ruler of the synagogue. He's come in, he's been disruptive, and in fact, he's actually been driven out of the synagogue on at least one occasion. His teaching and his, his methods are at the very least disruptive to someone who likes the, the status quo. So for Jairus, this, this religious leader, endorsing Jesus would have been a kind of a risky move. He's risking his political status, he's risking his professional dignity. But can I tell you, when your daughter is on her deathbed, who cares, right? Who cares? He wants Jesus. He's desperate. For Jesus, He thinks he's desperate for Jesus just for his daughter, but he's, he's going to find out shortly that he needs Jesus himself. And here he is. All his theological, social, political objections, they go out the window. As the boats pull in, Jesus steps ashore, and Jairus falls on his face in front of Jesus. It says, And seeing him, he fell at his, at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter... It's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. Imagine the spark of hope there's hope. Jesus is coming. The healer is on his way. If we hurry, he may well be able to heal my daughter. I've heard of what he can do, but the clock is ticking. This is emergency go time. So so Jairus and his entourage, an ambulance speeding to the hospital, sirens blaring. They begin to hurry through the crowd, pushing back anyone who is getting in their way back toward the village of Capernaum to his home. But it says a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. This word thronged or oppressed as we see in other passages. It comes from that same word that we used when we we're talking about the sower and the seeds and the seed that goes into the soil and gets choked out by thorns and weeds. This is what the crowd is doing to Jesus. It is thronging about him. It is slowing down his movement. They're choking in on him, crushing in around him. So if you're the kind of person who doesn't like to get touched, this is your nightmare, nightmare isn't it? Everyone reach out and touch that person. I'm just kidding, don't do that. Jairus, Jesus, and his disciples, they're pushing through. They're doing everything they can to get through this crowd and get back to the house. And maybe they only know how dire it really is, but they are desperate. But watch what happens next. Watch this, verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Interesting, parallel, right? 12 years that this daughter has been alive, 12 years that this woman has been afflicted with this menstrual irregularity, this discharge of blood. And she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Faith. And then immediately, as she touches him, it says, The flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. Of her disease. So here's this woman. She's been, she's been ill for 12 years. She's been suffering from this, this chronic condition. Certainly her situation is not as acute as Jairus' daughter. Certainly if she, she can deal with this for 12 years, maybe she could wait a little bit longer. No, I don't think so. Put yourself in her shoes. Think of the hopelessness that she's been facing as physician after physician has tormented her with their unsuccessful treatments. These quack doctors that she's given all her money to to, to, to try to fix her. And the ramifications of her specific condition are, are in this society, very heavy. She has been considered, according to Jewish law, unclean, ceremonially. Not just once a month, but for 12 years straight. And so what that would mean for her is, number one, loss of finances. We've seen that she's spent all that she has on doctors. And has not gotten better, but has gotten worse. She has emptied her bank accounts. She has now nothing. Medical bills crushing her. Loss of finances. Secondly, we see alienation from fellowship because, according to the law, someone who is uh, in her condition, unclean, would be unable to come into the place of worship. She's not able to go to church, she's not allowed. Think about that. Unable to go into worship, unable to be part of, of the fellowship of believers in, in an era in which, which we've seen the effects, the devastating effects of isolation. Think about what was going on in her health mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally as she's isolated from community. It's not good. There's no, no church online, no, no streaming synagogue, no, nothing like that. She is utterly alone, disconnected from fellowship, and likely, thirdly, isolated from family. Scholars believe based on her condition, she would not be married, she would be unable to have children, and so she would be on her own, most likely alone for the last 12 years, 12 years broke, unable to have and sustain a family of her own, considered unclean, unrighteous, dis- devalued, forgotten. This woman is the exact opposite of what we see in Jairus, the community leader, this, this esteemed family man. And yet they share one thing in common. They are desperate for Jesus. They both take a leap of faith toward Jesus. And here in this moment, as the crowd is, is crushing in around Jesus, she reaches out a desperate hand and somehow does what she is forbidden to do. She, she, in her uncleanness, grabs a rabbi by his robe in public and immediately she knows that she is healed. I don't know what that feels like. But immediately she knows that she has been made well. And so Jesus, he's, he's surrounded by people. Everyone's touching him, right? Everyone's pushing in on him. And he stops the procession. And verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he knows what has happened. He immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments. Jesus puts the brakes on a speeding ambulance to find out who in a crowd of people pressing in on him touched him. Verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? Luke tells us that this is Peter, actually, that that says this to him. He's like, everybody touched you, Jesus. Why are we stopping? Everybody is touching you. And he's making a good point. But Jesus persists. Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. It's almost like when someone in the classroom gets in trouble and it's like, we're not going to lunch until you tell me who did it, right? It's that kind of feeling. Nobody wants to step forward. No one wants to admit what they had done. But this woman, she did touch him. She knows she's been healed and she knows she's been caught. It says in verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She has to tell the whole crowd, in front of everyone, what she was dealing with in her body, and also what has happened to her. She tells how she was instantly healed. And you see here, by the way, she's trembling. It's like, why is she trembling? This amazing thing has happened. She's in fear, and and she feels ashamed as she comes before Jesus. She feels like she's done something wrong. Like he's going to condemn or rebuke her. But here's what's so amazing about Jesus. I, I love this. It's a beautiful scene. Here in the midst of all this chaos, all this, this activity around Jesus, it's like he looks on this woman, and, and despite the crowds, it's like she's the only person in the world to him in that moment. And he looks at her and he locks eyes with her though there's a great crowd around him with a lot of urgency and Jesus simply tunes out the crowd and speaks to her as if she's the only one there. In verse 34, he said to her, notice this word, notice the parallel to to the family of Jairus. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman, unclean, a nobody, the antithesis of of Jairus and his household, and yet Jesus loves her. He loves them, them both, and he loves this woman so tenderly that did you know she is the only woman in scripture that he refers to his daughter? The only one. What does that mean? It means he could have just let her have her healing and move on, he could have let her just experience this, but he had something so much better in store for her. She and everyone else needs to know that it was not just some superstition that she could touch him and be healed, but rather it was her faith in the living God. It was her faith. And not only does she get a healing from this encounter, she gets a new identity as she is welcomed into the family of God as the Son of God himself says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Be healed. Be healed. He, he commends her to his own family, the family of God, as daughter simply for having the faith to reach out and touch his garment. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it a beautiful picture? It's beautiful. Until you remember, Jairus is still there. Watching all this watching this unfold, waiting, uh, uh, not understanding, not fathoming what is going on. He's desperate to save his daughter. The clock is ticking. He's counting down the seconds, but we don't see him speak up. We don't see him interrupt. He must be so overwhelmed that he can't even speak, that Jesus would stop for so long to speak to this woman. Twelve years, she can wait a little bit longer. We don't have twelve minutes. This This is terrible medical triage. This should not have happened. And so if it's me, I'm getting angry. I'm getting irritated. I'm getting overwhelmed. I'm giving up hope. My patience is wearing out. But Jesus delays, and he continues to talk to this woman. He has a conversation with her in the middle of this crowd. And it says in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Let Jesus go. It's over. And just like that the the unimaginable the unthinkable has happened jesus took too long and in the delay jairus has lost his daughter and so they tell jairus to leave jesus and to go home to be with his family i don't know what you would be feeling right now but when jesus looks into the face of jairus in response to this news what he sees in jairus's face is fear fear Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. What an unbelievable request that Jesus is making of Jairus. But do you know that Jesus is worthy of your belief? If Jesus is with you and Jesus is with Jairus by his side, you need not fear anything, but only believe. So they set off again. They, they go to the house. They find at the house there's a bunch of mourners that are gathered there. People are already weeping and wailing because Jairus' daughter has died. And, and it says this in verse 37. Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. This is not familiar to us, but this was kind of a common practice that almost to give permission to people to grieve. Uh, the... Uh, professional mourners would come in, almost like the funeral home would send people in to to weep out loud, to cry aloud, to to demonstrate a solidarity with what this family is going through. And this would be this, this big commotion of weeping and wailing outside of the home and even inside of the home. Verse 39, and when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion? Why are you weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, this seems weird, laughter, like the family should not be laughing right now. And so it's helpful to remember that these are some of the professional mourners that have come in to, to mourn alongside this family. It, but it's, it's kind of disturbing how quickly their, their mourning turns to laughter. And so he puts them all out. He, it says he put them all outside. He takes everyone and he says, get out of the house. And then it says he takes the child's father and mother and those who are with him, that is Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. So Jesus, with the parents by his side and with three of his closest disciples and friends, he enters into the dark room where the child is laying in the corner and they see there this pale, lifeless body. This little girl has indeed died. Jesus walks over to her side. He gets down low. He looks upon her and it says in verse 41, taking her by the hand. That's the tenderness of Jesus. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha. Talitha is this diminutive name. It it, it doesn't really have a direct translation, but it's like little one. Sweetheart. Kumi. Wake up. Little girl, I say to you, arise. It's as if he says to her, honey, it's time to get up. And he reaches down into death and raises her up into life. Verse 42, and immediately... The girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement that's an understatement i have no idea what those emotions are like but but they've got to be even more than can be expressed with the word amazement they are overwhelmed overcome they can't believe what has just happened and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat this is amazing what jesus has done two daughters Two daughters whose whose lives and destinies and eternities have been drastically changed through an encounter with Jesus. This is what he does. This is the Jesus that we meet on the pages of scripture. This is the Jesus that you can come to know personally. A Jesus that, that loves and heals and pursues and eventually will die for these very women yet be raised to new life, to give them not just a temporary resuscitation, but an eternal life. That is the promise of what Jesus has done. And so as we approach this story, I was thinking about this story a lot this week, and I was thinking, how do we apply this to our lives? What's in this story for us? And can I tell you, there's a lot. We could draw out 10 points of application from this. There's a lot for us to consider and to chew on, but I'm just going to give you four things to consider this morning, four things, as we move toward a conclusion. The first is this, This stood out to me starkly this week. This was a week full of interruption, full of disruption, full of a lot going on. And and the first thing I saw was this. Jesus sees interruptions as opportunities for ministry. Jesus sees interruptions as opportunities for ministry. I'll confess to you that when I'm studying scripture, when I'm preparing a sermon, or or I'm praying, or I'm I'm doing whatever it is that holy people do, um, I can't stand to be interrupted. I don't like it. I don't like when, when people burst in upon my, my quote-unquote ministry work. But God has, has greatly convicted me with this phrase. Mark, the interruptions are your ministry. There, it is hard times out there for a lot of people economically. I don't know if you know this, but I, I read the stat that, that in the last month, 25% of Americans said they did not eat enough. And, and the church front door and the phone has been reflective of that. As people have been calling and coming in with, with great need, and, and we as a church do our best to respond to that. But, but can I tell you, our benevolence budget, our budget for the poor is, is evaporating because times are getting tougher and tougher. It's a constant flow of interruptions. And, and again and again this week, Jesus was, was convicting me with the statement, the interruptions are your ministry. How many of you are willing to embrace that? That when things don't go exactly according to your plan today, that he might just have ministry in front of you. He might just have that woman reaching out and grabbing the hem of your garment as you represent Jesus to the world around you. Are you prepared for that? Is your heart willing to say, Jesus, no matter how my day goes, no matter how my plans proceed, I want to be led by you. I want to be present the way that you are. I want to be like you. Are we prepared to do that? I tell you that when everything goes according to my plan, it's very unlikely that it's going according to God's plan for my life. At least from my perspective. When I'm just doing the Mark thing, when I'm doing uh, my own way, trust me, God's plan, his purposes will prevail, he is sovereign, but I can tell you when I'm, I'm, I'm submitted to his purposes, when I'm abiding in him, when I'm connected to him in his word and praying, I am so much better prepared for what feel like disruptions to my plans to be able to be present and to join God in what he is already doing. God's plan often looks like disruption. It often looks like interruption. And so I want to just invite you, if you need something, interrupt us as a church staff. Disrupt us. Call. Stop by. Email. If you want to interrupt me, my email address is (laughs) bill.jeski. No. This is an invitation to all of us. To be abiding in the Lord, to be ready to respond Jesus sees interruptions as opportunities for ministry. He can see what the Father is doing, and he does only what he f- sees the Father doing. The second thing I see in this, it's, it's a clear implication of this passage, is that Jesus heals. Still, Jesus heals. We read these passages, and it's like, wow, miraculous. Jesus can heal people. Do you know that he still heals? The, the promise of Scripture is the encouragement of Scripture is that we pray for healing that we pray for the sick, that, that we seek the Lord, that he could respond to us by bringing healing. And so I don't want us to miss this. Jesus heals emotionally. Jesus heals spiritually. Jesus heals, yes, physically. Jesus heals mentally. We believe that God still heals because God does not change and because his word tells us that he does. And this is the Jesus that we love and serve, a Jesus who heals. Now, in Scripture, does every person experience healing when they come into the presence of Jesus? No. No. God has purposes that are beyond us. He, he, he responds to faith. There, there's mysteries that we don't understand. Even in this crowd, there's many pressing in around Jesus, but only one walks away with the healing. But what we do see in Scripture is this imperative to pray. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Church, we serve a powerful God, one who is still at work by his Holy Spirit in his church to this day, a God who continues to work and to heal and to transform lives. And we as a church believe that that he desires for us to be part of that. He desires to work through us for that. What we see in this passage is that he heals both the acute and the chronic. He heals things that seem like they're never going to get better and things that have just happened, like the daughter of Jairus. He heals the old. He heals the young. We see that he's he's lord over the deep. He's lord over the demons. And, And yes, he is lord over disease and even death. He is lord over it all. There's nothing too great for him. And so we are going to pray by faith. After the service is over, after the sermon is over, I should say, we're gonna have a time of response and worship and and then over under those crosses, some of our elders and their wives are going to to gather to avail themselves to pray for you during a time of response and as we take communion. And the question for you this morning is simply this, can we pray for you? Can we pray for you? I I know what it feels like to stand up at the end of a church service and walk over to receive prayer from someone. It feels like you have some Some needs in your life, some problems in your life that might need prayer. Who has those? Right? We all have needs in our life that could use some prayer. So so that's our our humble ask to you this morning as as the leaders of this church that God has placed here, the shepherds of this church, is, is can we pray for you? Will you allow us to pray for you? The third thing I see here in this passage is this. Jesus offers more and requires more than you can ever imagine. Both of these women in this story, both Jairus, the father of this young daughter, and also this this woman who was ill, came to Jesus expecting one thing and and ended up getting much more than they asked for. And yet Jesus required a lot more of them than they were expecting. Jairus came for a healing. What he got was a resurrection. That's that's a bit of an upgrade there, I would say. And what was required of him was more than he expected. He had to maintain faith as his hope grew less and less in greater and greater darkness. Jesus demanded even more faith from him. The woman, on the other hand, she wanted a a, a fast food Jesus. She wanted to, to get her healing and move on with her life. But what she got instead, so much better, a welcome into God's family as daughter by the Son of God himself. And the cost, though, was that she had to publicly profess what had happened to her before the crowd. This is how it is with Jesus. What he offers you is so beyond what you could imagine. It is so, so good. And yet, when you follow Jesus, he demands so much from us. Jesus offers us all of me, eternal life, relationship with me, all of me, for all of you. All of you. Jesus desires to be Lord of all, we're not Lord at all. He is demanding. And yet he is so, so good. Can I tell you, to, to, to for the weight of your life into the arms of Jesus is so, so worth it. Following Jesus always has a cost far more than you realize, but it is worth it far beyond anything you could ever dream of. Lastly, fourth implication I see is this. To those that know Jesus, death is not the end. We've seen in in, in this story how Jesus confronts some of our deepest fears, uh, the deep, the demonic, the disease. But of all the things we fear, perhaps the the greatest fear we have is is death itself, that end, that that fade to black. And we've talked about this week after week, but, but to the Christian, for the believer in Jesus, it is not a fade to black. We see a picture here, just a brief glimpse of what it is like to know Jesus and to die in Christ. Jesus says, Your daughter is not dead, she is only asleep. And what she experiences as she wakes up is so similar to what we will experience. As you, as a believer, die, as you close your eyes in death, Jesus is there by your side. He is with you. And when your eyes open again in eternity, he will be the first voice you hear, the first face you see. You will be in his near presence. That is our confident hope as believers. That this is not the end there is life beyond this and that can give us a hope and a boldness to live differently knowing that reality. We're going to respond to the Lord now. I'm going to ask if you haven't had an opportunity to go to the back and pick up communion elements. If you are a believer in Jesus and you'd like to uh, join us we welcome you to take communion. The band is going to come up and I'm going to ask some of our, our elders to go and, and be under these crosses to be prepared to pray with you and for you. And so what we have here is a wafer representing Christ's body, if you peel back the first layer, and a second layer revealing the juice representing Christ's shed blood for you. I'm just going to read a scripture to you, and then I'm going to invite all of us to take communion together for those that are believers in Jesus. And then we'll respond together in worship as we conclude. 1 Corinthians Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world the body of our Lord Jesus broken for you take and eat in remembrance of him the blood of our Lord Jesus shed for you and for your sin drink all of it in remembrance of Christ shed blood for you grace heavenly father thank you for your word to us today I pray you continue to move in our hearts that we might leave changed through our encounter with you here today. Through your word, in Jesus' name.